वेलकम टू न्यू बुक्स इन साउथ एशियन स्टडीज आर गेस्ट टुडे इज कैथरीन मैक्रेगर ऑफ द यूनिवर्सिटी ऑफ मेलबर्न एंड शी इज गोइंग टू बी टॉकिंग अबाउट हर बुक हिस्ट्री इन यूनिफॉर्म दैट्स राइट रेजिमेंटेड प्लान्ड हिस्टोरियोग्राफी एज एक्सिक्यूटेड बाय द पोस्ट कॉलोनियल इंडोनेशियन आर्म्ड फोर्सेस दीस गाइस हैड अ लार्ज पार्ट टू प्ले इन इंडोनेशियन पॉलिटिकल लाइफ and they did a good deal to make sure that history books reflected this not just the books they set about building a superabundance of museums and memorials to all that they considered significant catherine's going to talk to us about the exigencies that fueled this large scale project and also about some of its principal architects good morning catherine good morning विक्टोरिया ऑस्ट्रेलिया and i've been working here since 2004 so i do a lot of uh teaching at the undergraduate and also supervision at postgraduate level so i teach courses on southeast asian history but also on southeast asian societies um in addition to my teaching i also uh have done quite a bit of research particularly on the indonesian military and on history historiographies and debates around memory how societies remember and some of my teaching now also extends into those areas and i've also had a number of postgraduate supervisions in those areas as well uh in addition to that i suppose i've done several fellowships including one last year in melbourne at swinburne university a fellowship on the question of historical justice and memory and in 2008 i did a fellowship also to singapore national university at the asia research institute uh so yes my research has involved um a lot of research on indonesian history uh and i'll talk about that more in a minute also could you tell us something about uh, how you got interested in indonesia you know from your undergrad days or maybe even before and then to where you are currently yes so My interest in Indonesia began when I was 19 years old when I first traveled to Indonesia as a student with a couple of friends. At that time I didn't know very much about Indonesia. I'd just been inspired to go there by another traveler that I met who said, you know, it's a very interesting country. So I went there first in uh when I was 19 years old and traveled throughout Bali, Java and Sumatra just on a shoestring budget just catching buses throughout South, uh, throughout Indonesia so um and with very little language it was sometimes an amusing experience trying to communicate what i needed to but um it was an exciting adventure for a young person and it just opened my eyes as to how different this country that was so close to australia was um and how fascinating it was in terms of many different traditions there the colorful culture and um just the fact that this country was so different to australia and so close so after i returned to australia i started studying indonesian language i hadn't studied lang- indonesian language before only french language so 
I took up Indonesian language and also became very interested, more interested in the country through studying the language and learning a lot more about it. So eventually I started also studying Indonesian history and found that also fascinating. And from there, I guess my interest continued and I did an honours in Indonesian history. And then being still interested in that, I, I decided after some travel throughout Asia to also do a PhD on Indonesian history. So that's really how my interest started. Um, and you tend to find that people who are interested in, in Indonesia often sort of have a turning point in their lives when they become really fascinated by this country. Um, so what drew you exactly to studying the Indonesian military? Because there are just so many aspects of Indonesia that you could have studied. Yes, I guess that's true. I'm interested in contemporary history, I guess, because I find um, the period after independence particularly exciting. Um, I wasn't necessarily most interested in the Indonesian military to start with. It's quite a formidable institution, I guess. But uh, I began by being interested in the way that Indonesians used ideas of history to navigate who they were, particularly for a younger nation um, trying to articulate um, a sense of identity. I found Indonesia a very interesting case study. So through my interest in history-making and official history, which is something I guess I picked up as an undergraduate, I became interested in looking at some of the official constructions of history in Indonesia. And I was interested also not just in history textbooks, but also in museums and monuments and all the different kinds of historical representations in Indonesia. And so after a preliminary survey of some of those sites of history in Indonesia, I kept coming across the name of one person, Negroho Nofasusanto, who was the key historian for the New Order regime. And then when I learned more about this man, I found out that he actually was what could be described as both a military man but also an academic. So he was trained in history at the University of Indonesia and also abroad but he also uh, was a person who had participated in the independent struggle from 1945 to 1949 against the Dutch in a youth organisation called the Student Army, or Tintara Plaja. So here in this man was a person who was both um, a very strong advocate of the Indonesian military, but also a historian. And he was the historian behind most of the history projects of the Suharto New Order regime, which was in power from 1966 to 1998. So really when I started looking at all these sources of historical representation in Indonesia, I kept seeing this name, Nagrohan Sasanto. He was behind many of the key military museums, but also the National History Textbook, and also behind a key military-produced propaganda film about the September movement of 1965, which was extremely influential. And he also tried to influence uh, the history curriculum for students and also for soldiers. So I guess it was really his name that led me to the military and, and also I ended up writing quite a detailed biography of him in my key work about the Indonesian military. So in a roundabout way, it was really um, the, the fact that the military was so heavily involved in history-making that led me to them because my interest was primarily in constructions of history and ideas of national identity.
Um, so that's very interesting, actually, because in Chapter Two you mentioned uh, about you know how Nagrogo was really not from a military background. He was from you know the Japanese elite, and they were more into academic pursuits. So what do you think got him interested in the military in the first place? I mean, you got a young boy, and he's 14 years old. So why does he want to go and join you know the freedom movement? I think that the independence struggle is remembered uh, now as. Very important period in Indonesian history. I think for the generation who grew up in that period, it was also an exciting time. We know from many other contexts, whether it be young Australian men conscripting for the war, or for example, young Vietnamese men who joined the Viet Minh or women who joined the Viet Minh. Often the attraction was, as a youth, the, the freedoms that joining such an organisation entailed, such as being able to perhaps escape the um, Restrictions of your family by joining a movement like that to go out in the days.、Um, for example, the student army with which Nagroha was involved was very much、uh, involved in leaving their school desks. This is sort of the central slogan that they have. They had to give up their school desks to go out and participate in the independence struggle. But I think that would have offered a sense of adventure for young people. Nagroho was also a fictional writer and wrote about the independence struggle in some of his literary works. And I think in those works he also conveys a sense of romanticism about this period. And so I guess the attraction for him would have been this idea, also a romantic idea of making a sacrifice for your nation. I do think he was very dedicated to the military, and he did want to join the military after the conclusion of the independence struggle, when a lot of People like himself had offers to go to a military academy and study, but his father, who was also an academic,、uh, stopped him from doing that and encouraged him instead to have、uh, an academic career. So I think right from the beginning he was torn between these two choices, and he was quite a unique individual because of that, because he greatly revered the romanticism of、uh, the soldier's identity, and he very much subscribed to the, the idea that. Soldiers who participated in independence struggle had a particular mantle or duty to their nation, and, and that came across later in his writing as well. And so, would you say that you know, for the older generation, for people like Nagroho's father, there was always this you know break, this dichotomy between like、uh, the intellectuals and what was the Indonesian army or maybe the Dutch East Indies army, you know, in colonial times. Yes, perhaps so.、Um, a number of scholars have written about that sort of、uh, a gap in thinking between those generations, particularly those who were educated by the Dutch, who perhaps were more conservative in their thinking. I think the Japanese occupation, which came before the independence struggle, also served to radicalise a section of the population. And、uh, Anthony Reid has written about this period as a wonderful metaphor about the transition. From an emphasis on the, the、um, briefcase in the Dutch period, which referred to bureaucratic values, to the samurai traditions of the Japanese period. So during the Japanese period, there was much more emphasis on military values as being something that were、um, revered and important to have, as opposed to the emphasis previously on a bureaucratic career and being trained in Dutch language, ready for the civil service of, of the colonial administration. So I think between His, himself and his father. That this was a representation of the gaps between those two generations. The younger generation were perhaps also 
um, more anti-Western, also as a result of the Japanese influence, which encouraged them to rebel against uh, Western colonial powers. So it's true that there was um, a generational difference between Nagroho and his father. And uh, how would you say that the army or people associated with the Indonesian armed forces, you know, how did they deal with the immediate transition from colonial rule to becoming an independent nation? You know, what did they think about it? How did they think they wanted to position themselves in a new nation? Uh, are you meaning, um, sorry, during the independence struggle or what period? Um, well, you see, well, generally the 1940s, I mean, previously people who were part of the army, part of the armed forces, you know, they were kind of like the armed forces of the Dutch, really. Mm-hmm. So after the independence struggle, maybe they had to kind of make the transition fighting like on behalf of the Indonesians themselves. So how did they deal with, you know, this change in their identity? Okay, yes. Um, I guess there were divisions amongst the Indonesian military between those who'd been trained by the Dutch and those who'd been trained by the Japanese. And even during the independence struggle itself, there were already struggles also over who was going to dominate the emerging Tentara Nasional Indonesia, the Indonesian National Army. So there were differences there. In terms of the way the Indonesian military has written its history, though, it very strongly emphasises that it was only born in 1945 with the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. So they very strongly reject the fact that they were actually a creation of either the Japanese or the the Dutch militaries. So the Indonesian military has tried to work hard on the coherent idea that the Indonesian army was formed out of the people from 1945. Um, But I think continuing into the 1950s, there are also probably struggles between the older and younger generations in the Indonesian military and those who were trained by the Dutch and those trained by the Japanese. So, again, it's right that there probably was also generational divides within the Indonesian military, although they worked hard on trying to achieve coherence, particularly with the inception of the new order regime. Uh, could you tell us something more about that, about the differences between the army, the section of the army that was trained by the Dutch and those who were trained by the Japanese? Um, well, I guess those who were trained uh, by the Japanese, again, um, would have been implicated in the values of uh, anti-Western sentiment and also very strong emphasis on, you know, that Bushido or the fighting spirit, whereas um, those trained by the, Jap- by the Dutch, of course, um, were previously also fighting against the Indonesians who were resisting colonialism, so that's an interesting legacy in itself. And a lot of members of the Dutch colonial army were also recruited from particular islands of Indonesia, like Ambon, where the population was more uh, in line with the Dutch. They supported the Dutch more heavily, perhaps also because of um, religious affiliations. They were more Christian in other parts of Indonesia. And so the Dutch recruited heavily from Ambon uh, for their Dutch army as well. And some Ambonese members continued to fight in the Dutch army on behalf of the Dutch against the Indonesians during the independence struggle. So it's quite difficult to sort of draw a line and say all oh, Indonesians were on one side. That's just not correct. Yeah, that's true. So, but after independence, how did they set about reconciling these differences? You know, did they try and explain them away or did they say, okay, this was an inherent part of our history, but we've got to move forward now, something like that? Uh, yeah, in terms of their history, I think because Indonesia was a young nation as well, there was a lot of emphasis on unity. So a lot of the 
violence of the independent struggle, you know, even violence against, for example, um, the Indos, people who were mixed Dutch Indonesians who'd been targeted for violence during the revolution, things like that, divisions within the nation were definitely played down for the cause of national unity. So the Indonesian military would stick very strongly to one narrative that they were born in 1945, the army was created then together with the people, there were no tensions. Um, and But the army does, for example, emphasise that they did have to fight off the communists in 1948 and also to fight off Islamic rebellions, which commenced during the independence struggle. So they do emphasise some threats to the nation in the form of either communism or Islam, but they don't talk very much about divisions within the Indonesian military. Um, so these people, they were obviously very nationalistic and to a certain extent because of the situation, they were a little bit anti-Western as well. And obviously Indonesia was a leading player in the non-aligned movement. So how did the army feel about that? Um, in the 1955, uh, of course, was a central moment in Indonesian history with the Bandung Asia-Africa Conference. I haven't investigated in detail the role of the Indonesian military in that period, but they were certainly wary about Sukarno's increasingly close relationships with communist countries, particularly China. So the military as an institution was traditionally anti-communist, and that dates back to the independence struggle, which I mentioned earlier, the 1948 alleged communist uprising, which the military crushed um, and then proceeded to kill key communist leaders after that rebellion of 1948. So as a legacy of that period, the military was always wary of communism as a force. And in the 1950s, there were also continuing repressions against the Communist Party. But by 1955, the same year in which the Bandung Conference took place, the Indonesian Communist Party performed quite well in the national elections. So this was already raising alarm bells for anti-communist forces such as General Nasution, one of the key leaders of the Indonesian army. So my uh, guess would be at the time of the Bandung conference that um, the Indonesian army would have you know, just been watching and waiting, but at the same time they were concerned about the rising influence of communism, and so they would have perhaps preferred that Indonesia was less neutral less, uh, and perhaps more strongly aligned with the non-communist world than Sukarno would have liked. So uh, this would have been around the time that the Armed Forces History Centre was established. Uh, Armed Forces History Centre, is that what you said? Yeah. Yes. Yes, um, the Armed Forces History Centre was established in 1964, I think. That was a bit a bit later than this non-aligned movement. But by that time, things had polarised a lot more since 1955. So um, the Indonesian Communist Party was... Uh, growing stronger in terms of its membership numbers. Um, it was the largest communist party outside of the communist world and also was attracting a lot of members to affiliated organisations like the Indonesian Women's Movement or um, the Indonesian uh, United Labour Organisation and also the Indonesian Peasants Union. So many of its mass organisations and also the party was attracting a lot of support um, because of its stance on particular issues, um, including you know, more worker rights um, and also issues to do with the progress of women, which is attracting Indonesian women to organisations like the Indonesian Women's Movement. 
And so the Communist Party was seen to be a rising power in Indonesia by the 1960s. And Sukarno was also seen to be more and more sympathetic towards the Indonesian Communist Party. He'd moved in terms of international alliances towards increasing support for China by this time. And so the Indonesian military by the mid-60s was very wary about the Indonesian Communist Party. And it was in that context in 1964 that General Nasution oversaw the development of the Armed Forces History Centre to write a history project that would counter um, another history project um, that was meant to be more favourable to the Communist Party. So the Armed Forces History Centre was set up with the explicit purpose of writing a version of history which would seek to downplay um, communist versions of history. In particular, um, the debates were most intense around the issue of Madiun, as I mentioned before, the communist uprising, alleged communist uprising of 1948. So the Indonesian army had continued to argue that that was a communist uprising inspired by Soviet influence, whereas the Indonesian Communist Party had throughout the 50s um, tried to rebut this version of history and argued that instead the Madiun affair was a provocation by uh, the US and by the military um, and that they, they only supported the action after um, the uprising occurred in Madiun um, and as a result the party uh, had been crushed violently without the trial of its key members. So this was a key issue of contestation throughout the 1950s which interpretation of Madiun would hold sway. And in the 1960s, just before the critical turning point of 30 September, the Armed Forces History Centre was set up to defend the army version of this event um, in order to prevent any uh, rebuttal of this history. So that means the Armed Forces Centre, History Centre, was set up in response to one specific incident, event or group. I mean, it was just done specifically to counter the communist threat. That's right. But the events took place in the 1940s, 1948, but it was still being contested. Interpretations of that event were still being contested, hotly contested in the 1950s, so um, particularly by the new chairman of the Indonesian Communist Party, Chairman Aidit. He wrote many uh, treatises about rebutting this version of Ledeon. So the Armed Forces History Centre was set up to to defend the Army's version of that event. So how did uh, Nubroho become involved with this? And, you know, what was his role in taking the thing forward in writing projects, books for this thing? Right. So uh, basically at that time he was working at the University of Indonesia and uh, Nasutian, he must have maintained some links with the military because General Nasution basically approached him to help in writing this military history. And so he contacted Negroho at that time and Negroho uh, came and wrote that first history for the Indonesian military in 1964, which was a year prior to um, the 3rd September movement. And when the 3rd September movement occurred, the 3rd September movement involved the kidnap and killing of the highest-ranking generals in Indonesia on the 9th of September 1965. When that movement took place, Nagroho was already then um, under the wing of General Nasution, who was targeting that coup attempt, but who survived. And um, so after the first September movement, it was very important for the military to try to control the public's understanding of those events. 
just to say a bit more about what happened in the first September movement, apart from the kidnap of the generals from their homes, they were also killed on that night and their bodies were taken to a well on the outskirts of Jakarta in an area known as Lubambwaya or Crocodile Hole. So their bodies were disposed of in this disused well and several days later they were recovered by the Indonesian military. The troops that were involved in kidnapping the generals on that night were members of the Sukarno's Chakabuara Presidential Guard and um, the members of that movement kidnapped the generals on that night. As far as we understand, the intention wasn't actually to kill uh, the generals. Instead, there's a long tradition of kidnap in Indonesian history, and they probably only intended to kidnap and hold the generals. However... Can uh, hold them hostage or something like that? Sorry, what was that? Uh, after kidnapping the generals, what was their original intention? Oh, okay. Their intention was to declare a revolutionary council that would um, you know, remove these generals um, from powerful positions. It was alleged that those generals were planning a plot against President Sukarno. So uh, the, the movement itself, which called itself the September Movement, intended to, um, to thwart a movement by the so-called Council of Generals against Sukarno. I should explain that in the same year, 1965, earlier that year, President Sukarno had grown increasingly unwell, so there were great concerns about the future of Indonesia. If he was to, for example, fall ill or die, then the Indonesian Communist Party and the army were anticipated to clash because they were the two key um, political axes in the new, in the guided democracy period. So after the 1st September movement, um, as I mentioned, the army was keen to control interpretations of those events. So they very quickly shut down the newspaper publications of the Indonesian Communist Party and they blamed the 1st September movement on the Indonesian Communist Party. So in this time, General Nasution, who'd been targeted in the revolt, was living in a house, um, a secluded house somewhere in Jakarta, and he was very conscious about the evolving political situation and in this period, in this critical period, within 40 days, he worked together with Nagroho um, to write the official version of the September movement. So there was a publication called The 40-Day Failure of the 3rd September Movement, which the army issued within 40 days of the uh, September movement. Um, the movement failed on the night of the 3rd September, or, or by the next morning it had already failed because there had been inadequate preparations for, for example, providing supplies for the troops who had seized key locations um, such as the Indonesian radio, public of Indonesian radio building and key locations around Jakarta. The movement was very poorly planned and it failed for that reason and General Sahato stepped in um, to suppress the movement in Jakarta. Um, so you say that the communists were finally subdued? Uh, yes, well, they were, they were but firstly, uh, a military propaganda exercise began against them to condemn them for the First September movement, to also condemn them for the alleged barbarity of the way which they killed the generals. There were allegations that they had tortured and mutilated the generals, that communist women had also danced naked around the well at the Bambuaya, 
Um, and so there were very elaborate uh, rumours about what had occurred at Bubanguaya and about the barbarism of the Indonesian Communist Party. And this uh, contributed to an escalation in resentment against the Indonesian Communist Party. Of course, there were many other issues that people were resentful of the party for, including attempted land reforms in the mid-60s and also attacks on figures in society who were called capitalist bureaucrats, uh, etc. So there were other sources of resentment against the party, but the military tried to escalate those resentments by blaming this very violent movement on the Indonesian Communist Party. The latest scholarly interpretation by John Ruza suggests that not even the whole of the Politburo or the Indonesian Communist Party leadership knew about the movement. Probably Chairman Aidit did know about the movement and was involved, but he hadn't consulted with even the whole head of the PKI and let alone members of the affiliated organisations. But all of them were blamed for the movement of the 3rd of September and almost overnight the Indonesian Communist Party was considered, um, in effect, an illegal organisation and people's um, houses were targeted, the headquarters of the Communist Party and affiliated organisations were attacked, um, and uh, within a number of weeks, the killings had already commenced also targeting those people. But uh, would you say that uh, during the New Order regime, the Indonesian military had a virtual monopoly on history writing or historiography? Um, they had a very strong monopoly. There were still possibilities for resisting their interpretations of history, though. For example, in the 1980s, when Nagroho was seen to be dominating the history curriculum, some historians were still speaking out in newspapers against, particularly against his denigration of President Sukarno. So there were some issues in which people felt they could speak out such as the attempt to downplay the significance of the first president of Indonesia and his role in Indonesian history. But there were other topics, such as the September movement, on which people couldn't speak very openly. It would be very risky to do so, because if anyone was labelled a communist, there were severe um, ramifications for such a position. So there were certain aspects of history on which Nagroho and the New Order's or military's interpretation of history was challenged, even in the 1980s. And even in the beginning of the regime, also, there were um, were some um, attempts to criticise the military. So it wasn't a case of a completely um, closed regime with no opportunities for critique, but it was sometimes risky to critique, yes. Um, and did Nagroho have any like rivals you know, within the military itself? Because other people might have had different ideas about how to present the military's version of history. Not that I know of. I think that, um, you know, he, he had difficulty perhaps being accepted in both worlds, in both the world of academia, because people saw that he wasn't giving an accurate portrayal of President Sukarno, who was pretty much admired by a lot of Indonesian people. So a lot of people didn't, didn't like the fact that he was seen to be selling himself out to the Indonesian military. At the same time, in military circles, I think that the Armed Forces History Centre was probably an institution that wasn't looked at with, uh, as being very important within the Indonesian military. I guess it's only an ideological institution. And within an institution such as the military, maybe those who are serving in combat roles or um, in other roles would be much more revered. So I, I didn't 
didn't see that there were many uh, rivals for his position, although he did try to mentor um, some of his students from the University of Indonesia to come and work for him at the Armed Forces History Centre, although none of them really rose to the same prominence that he did. Um, but they had a lot of aims, I mean, the historiographic project, I mean, like you talked about uh, chapters 3 to 6 in your book, consisting about defending the new order and consolidating military unity and, like, you know, promoting the dual functions and obviously dealing with ongoing and evolving threats. So that was quite a lot of direction, you know, for any one historiographer to cover. So how did they manage to deal with all that? Yes, uh, I guess so. I mean, Negroho, during the New Order period, a lot of historians avoided, and I'm talking about historians outside the military, avoided talking about contemporary history because they knew it was sensitive and difficult to navigate. So I guess Negroho did have, in some ways, a monopoly on the history that was written about that contemporary period because not many people did write about the contemporary period. But in his projects, I think one of his pet themes was the threat of communism, which basically came to define the New Order regime. But you could say a key ideological tenet of the New Order regime was anti-communism. So Negroho emphasised this in his history-making projects, including that first version of the First September Movement. Also in the film that he collaborated on um, about the First September Movement, which was made in the 1980s, um, which includes very elaborate reenactments of the kidnapping and murder of the generals. And this was a, a film project which was screened every year on the anniversary of the First September movement, and school children were forced to watch that film. So that was a very influential project on which he worked. He was also involved in, um, in the monument at Lubangwaya, the site where the generals were killed, that monument was progressively built upon over time. Other people were involved in those projects, like artists who were conscripted to, um, for example, produce the reliefs that uh, went beneath that monument, or in making dioramas for the museum. Some of the artists um, who were involved in those projects were also, I guess, uh, central to making these historical representations. But Negroho was often the overseer of those projects. But he did die in the early um, 1980s, so after that point there were other people who were influential. And, and one person I should mention, just to elaborate on that theme before, in the 1980s, the later 1980s, General Madani, who was a Catholic uh, uh, commander of the Indonesian military, he was quite influential in founding a museum to commemorate the extreme right or extreme uh, Islam in Indonesia. So that was a military museum dedicated to the theme of the threat of extremist Islam in Indonesia, which is quite astounding given a Muslim-majority country with oh, yes. a <laughs> dedicated to that. Yep. How did he manage to pull it off? Well, um, at that time, there were a number of incidents which were causing great concern in Indonesia. So the early 1980s, the government had pushed for every organisation to make the national philosophy, Pancasila, the sole basis of every organisation, and that had created quite a lot of disquiet, particularly from Islamic groups who were sick of being marginalised in politics. So there'd been a number of incidents and sort of reactions to that, um, to that decree. 
And I guess because um, Suharto was also quite concerned and, and trying to control these groups, and I think at that point in time he was very strongly uh, affiliated with the military and General Beni, Beni Madani, who was also quite against this trend uh, and very wary of political Islam, was able to influence Suharto enough to get his permission to found this museum. But I think it became a very quickly outdated relic as Suharto then turned to Islam as a political force even by the early 1990s, he'd already made that turn. And now today in Indonesia, I, I suppose that museum would both be sensitive but also, some might say, increasingly relevant as well given the developments in Indonesia, such as the emergence of Jamai Islamia and other groups like that. And so would you say that like from the 1980s onwards, there was a shift in the way that military went about the style of that piece. I mean, in the earlier days, they would maybe like focus on getting books written on getting literature out to people, and now they're moving towards a more artifact-based version of history, something that had more immediate visual impact. Um, I, I think they worked on multiple levels all the time. Even in 1972, there was a key military seminar called the Transfer of Values Seminar. A number of the directives that came out of that were to continue to emphasise the role of the military in Indonesian history. And they did that by means of creating more monuments around Indonesia to commemorate the role in the independence struggle. So even from the 1970s, they were thinking about building more monuments in every sort of town. Also, they started renaming streets to reflect the names of military heroes like General Sujirman, who was um, the first commander of the Indonesian military. So there were already all of these trends going on at the same time. I think maybe as the, as the regime had more money, it was able to do bigger projects. Um, and the developments at Lubumbaya, like, really progressed over time. Each year, probably, there was something added to that site, including first the memorialisation of the well, then they added a Javanese chungkuk uh, sort of hut structure over that well. And then progressively there was a ceremonial space and then later they added another museum to that site, large dioramas. So they kept adding to these sites and developing these sites. But um, I don't think we can say all of a sudden they had museums. Even by the 1970s they'd converted one of President Sukarno's former wives' houses into a military museum. Um, that was one of the first museums, Museum Satra Mandala, which is, is the museum where knights gather which was the museum which commemorated their role in the independence struggle. And that was very important, as you just mentioned before, in legitimating their dual political and military, political and military role. The representations of the independence struggle were central to that because they used that period to argue that the Indonesian military had been essential in achieving independence for the nation because the diplomatic leaders had, like Sukarno and Muhammad Hadda, had failed and the military leaders had had to take over the struggle in 1948 to win the struggle from the Dutch. So they used those representations of the independent struggle to make a very firm case for the fact that the Indonesian military were legitimate leaders in the country and should always play a political role in society. So as a researcher, how was that experience of, you know, actually going and visiting these sites, monuments and museums? At one level, uh, I guess it was um, it was good when you could be an anonymous observer at those sites and just make your notes and go about your business. But because I needed more information on those sites and access to, for example, some of the 
decision-making processes about monuments, about museums, and I wanted to get as many written publications to back up my um, commentary about the historical representations. That meant that I had to have official permission from the Indonesian military, and that entailed going through a long process of applying uh, for permission and also getting commissions specifically from the Indonesian military. So at times they also wanted to monitor what I was doing and escort me to particular sites. So um, it was sort of like a double-edged sword. It opened up doors for me. For example, um, I had an opportunity to follow with the cadets from the Indonesian military on their annual pilgrimage to retrace the steps of the first commander of the Indonesian military, General Sudirman, throughout the mountains around Yogyakarta. And that was a wonderful opportunity to observe how they used the historical legacies of Sudirman to instill in the cadets the idea that they are the natural leaders of the nation. This was still in the 1990s before the turn to the New Order regime. Uh, however, at the same time, it, um, being on that um, march, that very intense period right next to military cadets and, and their commanders, um, was also, I guess, um, kind of an intimidating experience as well, being in such close contact with an organisation that was trying to study as well. And uh, where do you see the Indonesian military you know, going after 1998 in terms of the history writing projects? I think that after the fall of the New Order regime, the military had a lot less control over historical representations, primarily because of the restrictions on press freedom being lifted um, by Habibi in 1998. Already with the fall of the Suharto government, almost immediately we saw people begin to reflect on the beginnings of the last regime, the beginnings of the Suharto regime. So first of all, they talked about different versions of the 3rd September movement and theories which have long been there in academic circles and conspiracy circles came out about was the CIA behind the 3rd September movement, was Suharto behind it, was Sukarno behind it. So many different theories were for, for the first time really expressed openly in the Indonesian press. And then eventually we began to see people also discuss what happened after the 3rd September movement and the violence in which half a million people died was eventually also discussed openly in the Indonesian press. So in that context, because the military wasn't able to revoke press licenses so easily or control what was said, they had much less control over official versions of history. Uh, but at the same time, there was a movement to liberalise this history. For example, there were also debates within the circles of historians about how history should now be taught in schools. Um, there was a sort of vacuum period in which um, school students were very angry with their teachers for still teaching them only one version of history. And we saw some students come out the street and burn their history books. And so that was one swing of the pendulum, but things have kind of swung back to um, back a little bit to the New Order position since then, because in 2004, when people had already begun to revise the history textbooks and offer other history textbooks in accordance with new government directions, there was a backlash from certain sections of the population, particularly Islamic groups who didn't want, uh, who didn't want a, um, an overturning of this official view that the Communist Party was responsible for the September movement of 1965. So there were protests then against this new um, curriculum reform and some authors were uh, called um, by the Attorney-General to account for why they had written versions of this 
1st September movement, which did not incriminate the Indonesian Communist Party. So things have um, waxed and waned over time in terms of what is possible to say. But at the same time, there's a lot more you know, democratic space in Indonesia to put more different versions of history and people who would be considered victims of that uh, violence after the transition to or during the transition to Suharto are now able to, for example, publish their memoirs or write in newspapers and sometimes be interviewed by the press as well to put forward their version of history. So things are a lot more democratic in terms of history writing. And the military also formally rescinded its political role in 1999 and now does not have um, as much dominance politically. So for that reason, um, they, they can't... Uh, as directly control history writing, although they can encourage other groups in society to protect certain versions of history. And I think they would still uh, want to preserve this image of the military as being the guardians of the nation and as having played a very important role in the independence struggle because that does justify um, perhaps the elite positions of many Indonesian military men. That was a very interesting comment about... uh many Islamist parties, you know, appropriating the military version of history, you know, as a tool in their own fight against communists. Yes. I think they probably shared that, they probably shared that history right from the beginning or since the violence of 1965. So in my latest research project, I've been looking at Islam and the politics of memory in post-authoritarian Indonesia. So I've been tracking debates about this violence of 1965 across Uh, different organisations in Indonesia, but I've been particularly focusing on the largest Islamic organisation in Indonesia, which is called Natadur Lama. Um, And that organisation was antagonised, or they felt they were antagonised by the Communist Party in the 1960s, particularly in areas like East Java, where the Communist Party and Natadur Lama were both very strong, and in which there were actions by the Communist Party to begin land reform in that area with... um, the, the mandate of the Indonesian government. So in those areas, um, some members of Nathur Lama felt very threatened by the Communist Party and even before the September movement, they'd formed an armed wing of their organisation called Bansa, Barisansa Baguna, um, an armed wing of Nathur Lama, which was ready for a confrontation with the Indonesian Communist Party and they'd already clashed over issues like land reform. Then when the 1st September movement happened, Natadur Lama was one of the first organisations nationally to come out and condemn the Communist Party as being responsible for the 1st September movement. So along with the army moving very quickly against the Communist Party, there were a number of allies and particularly religious forces who also uh, felt threatened by the Communist Party. So even from the early days of the New Order regime, um, or the transition to the new order regime, Nafidur Lama members had worked together with the military to um, eliminate the Communist Party, to crush the party in terms of participating directly in the killings, um, in particularly in rural areas, especially in the province of East Java. So they, from the very early days, developed a narrative that they had worked together with the military to save the nation from communism and from atheism. And so now that this history is being contested and that there's been more attention to the victims of this violence and potential um, perhaps reparations for those victims, then, of course, these groups are also interested to protect their own history. But there is also a division of views within that organisation 
And that's why this organization makes quite a fascinating case study, because some younger members of this organization have, since the fall of the Suharto regime, actually followed the lead of President Abdurrahman Wahid, who issued an apology in 1999 to uh, former leftists who were persecuted in the violence after 1965. So they followed the lead of Abdurrahman Wahid, who was a former leader of Nahu Ulama and also president of Indonesia in the year 2000, and they followed his lead by trying to achieve reconciliation with uh, survivors of that violence. And they've um, began a number of initiatives to achieve reconciliation in local communities across those two communities, so with those who participated in the violence and those who were either targeted in the violence or had their families targeted in the violence and have subsequently been stigmatised for many years. Um, so, okay, uh, just uh, going back to Nubroho, one tiny question, maybe a little bit off topic, but there's this point where you mentioned that he, so contrary to what was traditional for Indonesians, he went off to the School of Oriental and African Studies to pursue an MA, that he didn't go to the USA. What was the reason for Indonesians at the time opting to proceed to the USA for, like, you know, education? I mean, as opposed to Britain or Western Europe, I mean, was it because of some links or programs or something? Um, it's been, been a time since I've actually looked at that issue. I do remember reading about it. But, uh, um, I do think that a number of Indonesians were forming links with the United States, and I'm not exactly sure why Nagoko did choose to go to um, to London at that time. It sometimes depended on who their mentors were and then what links they had with the outside world. Um, and I think one of the people he was consulting with at that time might have been Fiona, so it might have depended on also on... Um, their mentors' uh, recommendations for where to go, but certainly a lot of people would have aspired to study in the United States or or in Europe. Um, of course, in the Dutch period, the colonial period, a lot of people would have gone to the Netherlands, but that was probably becoming increasingly out of fashion as the confrontation over uh, West Aryan was escalating as well. Okay, uh, well, Kate, we've kept you for a long time, uh, but one final question, could you tell us something about your future research plans? Where do you see it going? Thanks for that. Well, as I said, I've been working on a project on Islam and the politics of memory in post-authoritarian Indonesia, and I've developed several publications on that topic, and uh, shortly we'll be completing an edited book also on the violence of 1965 in Indonesia. I'm currently also developing a new project with my PhD student, Vanessa Hiraman, in which we're going to look at Indonesians on the world stage, so the political links between Indonesians and people across the globe um, in the 1950s and the 1960s. So particularly some of the people-to-people links which formed as a result of the Asia-Africa Conference, um, but also links that formed as a result of some shared global causes which emerged in the 50s and 60s, such as the anti-nuclear movement, peace campaigns, also women's rights issues, um, and an anti-imperialist movement in which Indonesia became increasingly involved in, um, I guess, as a response to their grievances against continuing colonialism in Indonesia from either the Dutch in the 1950s or the Americans and foreign capital interests in the 50s and 60s. So we're going to be looking in that project at the kinds of links that Indonesians developed with people across the world by means of political activism, attending conferences, 
serving as foreign representatives through sharing their writings and sharing the case study of Indonesia with many activists across the world. So we're just in the early stages of developing that project and I'm hoping to do some more research on it later this year on my sabbatical. Um, well, Kate, that was fascinating and uh, thank you very much for sharing your insights with the New Books Network and I'm sure you'll be really educated for our readers. Um, thanks again. Thank you. So, Fox, a very accessible talk to go with a multi-layered book. I'm sure it has made us see the armed forces as people driven by hopes and ambitions as proponents of soft power. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.